Chapter Twenty, Part One of My Life on the Plains. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Apache village had been represented as located only five or six miles from our camp, but we found the distance nearly twice as great. And although we rode rapidly, our horses being fresh, yet it was quite dark before we reached the first lodge, the location of the rest of the village being tolerably well defined by the apparently countless dogs, whose barking at our approach called forth most of the inhabitants of the village. As our coming had been previously announced by Little Robe and Yellow Bear, our arrival occasioned no surprise. Inquiring of the first we saw where the stream of water was, as an Indian village is invariably placed in close proximity to water, we were soon on our camp ground, which was almost within the limits of the village. Our horses were soon unsaddled and picketed out to graze. Fires were started by the men preparatory to the enjoyment of a cup of coffee, and every preliminary made for a good night's rest and early start in the morning. But here the officers of the party encountered their first drawback. For some unexplained cause, the pack mule which carried our blankets had with his attendant failed thus far to put in an appearance. His head leader had probably fallen behind and in the darkness lost the party. The bugler was sent to a neighboring eminence to sound signals with his bugle in the hope that the absent man with his mule might make his way to us, but all to no purpose. We were soon forced to relinquish all hope of seeing either man or mule or blankets until daylight, and consequently the prospect of enjoying a comfortable rest was exceedingly limited. Saddle bags were in great demand, but I was even more fortunate. A large number of the Apaches had come from their lodges out of mere curiosity to see us, hoping, no doubt, too, that they might secure something to eat. Among them was one with whom I was acquainted, and to whom I made known the temporary loss of my blankets. By promising him a pint of sugar and an equal amount of coffee on my return to my camp, he agreed to loan me a buffalo robe until morning. With this wrapped around me and the aid of a bright blazing campfire, I passed a most comfortable night among my less fortunate companions, as we all lay stretched out on the ground using our saddles for pillows. Early next morning, our pack animals having come up in the night, we were in our saddles and on our way ready and eager for whatever might be in store for us. The route taken by the guides led us along a northern border of the Wichita Mountains, our general direction being nearly due west. A brief description of these mountains and of the surrounding scenery is contained in the first chapter of Life on the Plains. As soon as it had become known in the main camp that our expedition, of which now I write, was contemplating young Brewster, who had never relinquished his efforts or inquiries to determine the fate of his lost sister, came to me with an earnest request to be taken as one of the party, a request which I was only too glad to comply with. No person who has not lived on the frontier or in an Indian country can correctly realize or thoroughly appreciate the extent to which a frontiersman becomes familiar with and apparently indifferent to the accustomed dangers which surrounded him on every side. But it is another verification of the truth of the old saying, 
familiarity breeds contempt. After getting well on our way, I began through Romeo conversing with the two chiefs, Little Robe and Yellow Bear, who rode at my side, upon the topic which was upmost in the minds of the entire party, when and where should we probably find their people? Before our departure, they had given me to understand that the villages might be found on the same one of the small streams flowing in a southerly direction, past the western span of the Wichita Mountains, a distance from our main camp not to exceed sixty or seventy miles. But I could easily perceive that neither of the chiefs spoke with a great degree of confidence. They explained this by stating that the villages would not remain long in one place, and it was difficult to say positively in what locality or upon what stream we should find them, but that when we reached the last peak of the Wichita Mountains, which commanded an unlimited view of the plains beyond, they would send up smoke signal and perhaps be able to obtain a reply from the village. In the evening we reached a beautiful stream of water with abundance of wood in the vicinity. Here we halted for the night. Our horses were fastened to the trees while the officers and men spread their blankets on the ground, and in the groups of two and threes prepared for the enjoyment of a good night's rest. One sentry remained awake during the night, and in order that the loss of sleep should be as little as might be consistent with our safety, the relief, instead of being composed of three men, each of whom would have to remain on duty for two hours for every four hours of rest, was increased in number so that each member thereof was required to remain on post but a single hour during the night. While I felt it confidence in the good intentions of the two chiefs, I did not neglect to advise the guards to keep a watchful eye upon them as we could not afford to run any avoidable risks. Long after we had sought the solace of our blankets and had dropped into a comfortable doze, I was awakened by an Indian song. There was, of course, no occasion for alarm from this incident, yet it was sufficient to induce me to get up and make my way to the small fire, around which I knew the three Indians and Romeo to be lying, and from the vicinity of which the singing evidently came. As I approached the fire I found Neva, the Blackfoot, replenishing the small flame with a few dried twigs, while Romeo and Yellow Bear were sitting nearby enjoying some well-broiled beef ribs. Little Robe was reclining in a half-sitting position against a tree, and apparently oblivious to the presence of his companions, was singing or chanting an Indian melody, the general tenor of which seemed to indicate a lightness of spirits. Young Brewster, unable perhaps to sleep owing to the thoughts of his lost sister, had joined the group and appeared an interested observer of what was going on. I inquired of Romeo why Little Robe had selected such an unreasonable hour to indulge in his wild melodies. Romeo repeated the inquiry to Little Robe, who replied that he had been away from his lodge for a long time, and the thought of soon returning and being with his people once more had filled his heart with gladness, which could only find utterance in a song. Taking a seat on the ground by the side of young Brewster, I joined the group, 
as neither little robe nor yellow bear could understand a word of english and neva was busily engaged with his culinary operations young brewster with unconcealed delight informed me that from conversations with little robe who appeared in a more communicative mood than usual had felt cheered by the belief that at last he was in a fair way to discover the whereabouts of his captive sister he then briefly detailed how little robe little dreaming that his listener was so deeply interested in his words had admitted that the cheyennes had two white girls as prisoners the date of the capture of one of them and the personal description given by little robe closely answering to that of brewster's sister in the hopes of gleaning other valuable information from time to time i advised the young man not to acquaint the indians with the fact that he had lost a sister by capture else becoming suspicious the supply of information might be cut off the tidings in regards to the captured girls were the most encouraging and spurred us to leave no effort untried to release them from the horrors of their situation before daylight the following morning we had breakfasted and as soon as it was sufficiently light to enable us to renew our march we set out still keeping almost due west in the afternoon of that day we reached the last prominent peak of the wichita mountains from which point little robe and yellow bear had said they would set up a smoke signal i had often during the indian campaign seen these signal smokes on my front on my right and left everywhere in fact but could never catch a glimpse of the indians who were engaged in making them nor did i comprehend at the time the precise import of the signals i was glad therefore to have an opportunity to stand behind the scenes as it were and not only witness the modus operandi but understand the purpose of the actors arriving at the base of the mountain or peak the height of which did not exceed one thousand feet we dismounted and leaving our horses on the plain below owing to the rough and rocky character of the ascent a small portion of our party including of course the two chiefs climbed to the summit after sweeping the broad horizon which spread out before us and failing to discover any evidence of the presence of an indian village anywhere within the scope of our vision the two chiefs set about to make preparations necessary to enable them to call to the village as they expressed it i have alluded in a former article on the perfect system of signals in use among the indians of the plains that which i am about to describe briefly was but one of many employed by them first gathering an armful of dried grass and weeds this was carried and placed upon the highest point of the peak where everything being in readiness the match was applied close to the ground but the blaze was no sooner well lighted and about to envelop the entire amount of grass collected then little robe began smothering it with the unlighted portion this accomplished a slender column of gray smoke which began to ascend in a perpendicular column this however was not enough as such a signal or the appearance of such might be created by white men or might rise from a simple campfire little robe now took his scarlet blanket from his shoulders and with a peaceful wave threw it so as to cover 
the smouldering grass when assisted by yellow bear he held the corners and sides so closely to the ground as to completely confine and cut off the column of smoke waiting for but a few moments and until he saw the smoke beginning to escape from beneath he suddenly threw the blanket aside and a beautiful balloon-shaped column puffed upward like the white cloud of smoke which attends the discharge of a field piece again casting the blanket on the pile of the grass the column was interrupted as before and again in due time released so that a succession of elongated egg-shaped puffs of smoke kept ascending toward the sky in the most regular manner this bead-like column of smoke considering the height from which it began to ascend was visible from the points on the level plain fifty miles distant the sight of these two indian chiefs so intently engaged in this simple but effective mode of telegraphing was to me full of interest and this incident was vividly recalled when i came across stanley's painting of the signal in which two chiefs or warriors are standing upon a large rock with lighted torch in hand while far in the distance as to be seen the answering column as it ascends above the tops of the trees from the valley where no doubt the village is pleasantly located in our case however the picture was not so complete in its results for strain our eager eyes as we might in every direction with no responsive signal could be discovered and finally the chiefs were reluctantly forced to acknowledge that the villages were not where they expected to find them and that to reach them would probably involve a longer journey than we had anticipated descending from the mountain we continued our journey still directing our course nearly due west as the two chiefs felt confident the village were in that direction that day and the next passed without further incident after arriving at camp on the second evening a conversation with the two indian chiefs made it seem probable that our journey would have to be prolonged several days beyond the time which was deemed necessary when we left the main camp and as our supply of provisions was limited to our supposed wants during the shorter journey it was necessary to adopt measures for obtaining fresh supplies this was more the imperative as the country thought which we were then passing was almost devoid of game our party was so small in number that our safety would be greatly imperiled by a serious reduction yet it was a measure of necessity that a message should be sent back to general sheridan informing him of our changed plans and providing for a renewal of our stores i acquainted the men of my command with my desire and it was not long before a soldierly young trooper announced that he would volunteer to carry a dispatch safely through the gallant offer was accepted and i was soon seated on the ground pencil in hand writing to general sheridan a hurried account of our progress thus far and our plans for the future with a request to forward to us a supply of provisions adding that the party escorting them could follow our trail and i would arrange to find them when required i also requested that colonel cook who commanded the sharpshooters should be detailed to command the escort and the california joe might also be sent with the party it was decided that the dispatch bearer should remain in camp with us until dark and then set out on his return to the main camp being well mounted well armed and a cool daring young fellow 
I felt but little anxiety as to his success, leaving him to make his solitary journey guided by the light of the stars and concealing himself during the day. We will continue our search after what then seemed to us the two lost tribes. Daylight, as usual, found us in our saddles, the country continuing interesting but less rolling, and, we judged by appearance, less productive. We saw but little game along the line of the march, and the importance of the time rendered delays of all kinds undesirable. The continents of Little Robe and Yellow Bear wore an anxious look, and I could see that they began to doubt their ability to determine positively the locality of the villages. Neva, the Blackfoot, was full of stories connected with his experiences under General Fremont, and appeared more hopeful than the two chiefs. He claimed to be the son-in-law of Kit Carson, his wife, a half-breed, being deceased. Carson, it appeared, had always regarded Neva with favor, and often made him and his family handsome presents. I afterwards saw a son of Neva, an extremely handsome boy of fourteen, whose comely face and features clearly betrayed the mixture of blood indicated by Neva. Yellow Bear finally encouraged us by stating that by noon the following day we would arrive at a stream on whose banks he expected to find the Arapaho village, and perhaps that of the Cheyennes. This gave us renewed hope, and furnished us a topic of conversation after we had reached our camp that night. Nothing occurred worthy of note until about noon the next day, when Yellow Bear informed me that we were within a few miles of the stream to which he had referred to the day before, and added that if the village was there, his people would have a lookout posted on a little knoll which we would find about a mile from the village in our direction, and as the appearance of our entire force might be given alarm, Yellow Bear suggested that he, with Little Robe, Romeo, Neva, and myself, and two or three others should ride some distance in advance. Remembering the proneness of the Indians to stratagem, I was yet impressed not only with the apparent sincerity of Yellow Bear thus far, but by the soundness of the reasons he gave for our moving in advance. I assented to his proposition, but my confidence was not sufficiently great to prevent me from quietly slipping a fresh cartridge in my rifle as it lay in front of me across my saddle-bow, nor from the unbuttoned strap which held my revolver in place by my side. Fortunately, however, nothing occurred to make it necessary to displace either rifle or revolver. After riding in advance for a couple of miles, Yellow Bear pointed out in the distance the little mound at which he predicted we would see something posted in the way of information concerning his tribe. If the latter was not in the vicinity, a letter would no doubt be found at the mound, which now became an object of interest to all of us, each striving to be the first to discover the confirmation of Yellow Bear's prediction. In this way we continued to approach the mound until not more than a mile of level plain separated us from it. And still nothing could be seen to encourage us, when owing to my reason being quickened by the excitement of the occasion, thus giving me an advantage over the chiefs or for other causes, I caught sight of what would ordinarily have been taken for two half-round stones or small boulders just visible above the upper circle of the mound, 
as projected against the sky beyond. A second glance convinced me that instead of the stones which they so closely resembled, they were neither more or less than the upper parts of the heads of two Indians, who were no doubt studying our movement with a view of determining whether we were friendly or war party. Reassuring myself by the aid of my field glass, I announced my discovery to the chiefs and the rest of the party. Yellow Bear immediately cantered his pony for a few yards to the front, when, freeing his scarlet blanket from his shoulders, he waved it twice or thrice in a mysterious manner, and waited anxiously the response. In a moment the two Indians, the tops of whose heads had alone been visible, rolled boldly to the crest of the mound and answered the signal of Yellow Bear, who uttered a quick, oft-repeated whoop and, at my suggestion, galloped in advance to inform his people who we were and our object in visiting them. By the time we reached the mound, all necessary explanations had been made, and the two Indians advanced at Yellow Bear's bidding and shook hands with me, afterwards going through the same ceremony with the other officers. Yellow Bear then dispatched one of the Indians to the village, less than two miles distant, to give news of our approach. It seemed that they had scarcely had time to reach the village before young and old began flocking out to meet us, some on ponies, others on mules, and occasionally two full-grown Indians would be seen mounted on one diminutive pony. If any of our party had feared that our errand was attended with risk, their minds probably underwent a change when they looked around, and among all sides saw armed warriors whose numbers exceeded ours more than ten to one, and whose entire bearing and demeanor towards us gave promise of anything but hostile feelings. Not deeming it best to allow them to encircle us too closely, I requested Yellow Bear, in whose peaceable desires I had confidence, to direct his people to remain at some distance from us, so as not to impede our progress, at the same time to inform them that it was our purpose to pitch our camp immediately alongside of theirs, when full opportunity would be given for interchange of visits. This proposition seemed to meet with favor, and our route was left unobstructed. A short ride brought us to the village, the lodges composing which were dotted in a picturesque manner along the left branch of the Mulberry Creek, one of the tributaries of Red River. I decided to cross the creek and bivouac on the right bank, opposite the lower end of the village, and within easy pistol range of the nearest lodge. This location may strike the reader with some surprise, and may suggest the inquiry why we did not locate ourselves at some point further removed from the village. It must be remembered that in undertaking to penetrate the Indian country with so small a force, I acted throughout upon the belief that if proper precautions were adopted, the Indians would not molest us. Indians contemplating a battle, either offensive or defensive, are always anxious to have their women and children removed from danger thereof. By our watchfulness, we intended to let the Indians see that there would be no opportunity for them to take us by surprise, but that if fighting was intended, it should not be on one side. For this reason, I decided to locate our camp as close as convenient to the village, knowing that the close proximity of their women and children and their necessary exposure in case of conflict would operate as a powerful argument in favor of peace, when the question of peace or war came to be discussed. But right here 
I will do the Arapahoes justice by asserting that after the first council, which took place in my camp the same evening, and after they had an opportunity to learn the exact character and object of our mission, as told to them by me, and confirmed by the earnest address of Yellow Bear and Little Robe, they evinced towards us nothing but friendly feeling, and exhibited a ready willingness to conform to the only demand we made of them, which was that they should proceed at once with their entire village to our main camp, within their reservation, and then report to General Sheridan. Little Raven, the head chief, spoke for his people, and expressed their gratification at the reports brought to them by Yellow Bear and Little Robe. They accepted with gladness the offer of peace, and promised to set out in three days to proceed to our main camp near the site of Fort Sill. As it was quite late before the council concluded the discussion of questions pertaining to the Arapahoes, no reference was made to the Cheyennes. Besides, I knew that Little Robe would be able to gather all possible information concerning them. Little Raven invited me to visit him the following day in his village, an invitation I promised to accept. Before the chief separated, I requested Little Raven to give notice through them to all his people that after it became dark it would no longer be safe for any of them to approach our camp as according to our invariable custom guards would be posted about the camp during the entire night and as we could not distinguish friends from foes in the darkness the sentries would be ordered to fire on every object seen approaching our camp to this little raven and his chiefs promised assent i then further informed him that during our stay near them we should always be glad during the hours of daylight to receive visits from him or from any of his people but to prevent confusion or misunderstanding not more than twenty indians would be permitted to visit our camp at one time this also was agreed to and the chiefs after shaking hands and uttering the customary how departed to their village yellow bear remained only long enough to say that his family being in the village he preferred of course to be with them but assured us that his people were sincere in their protestations of peace and that we might sleep as soundly as if we were back among our comrades in the main camp with no fears of unfriendly interruption after tethering our horses and pack mules securely in our midst and posting the guards for the night each one of our little party first satisfying himself that his firearms were in good order and loaded spread his blanket on the ground and with his saddle for a pillow the sky unobscured by tent or roof above him was soon reposing comfortably on the broad bosom of mother earth where banishing from the mind as quickly as possible all visions of indians peace commissioners etc sleep soon came to the relief of each and we all except the guards rested as peacefully and comfortably as if at home under our mother's roof and yet we all in seeking our lowly couches that night felt that the chances were about even whether or not we should be awakened by the war whoop of our dusky neighbors nothing occurred however to disturb our dreams or break our slumber save perhaps in my own case from a greater sense of responsibility perhaps than rested on my comrades but not greater danger I awoke at different hours during the night, and to assure myself that all was well, rose up to a sitting posture on the ground, and 
aided by the clear sky and bright starlight, looked about me only to see, however, the dim outlines of my sleeping comrades as they lay in all manner of attitudes around me, wrapped in their blankets of gray, while our faithful horses, picketed in the midst of their sleeping riders, were variously disposed, some lying down, resting from the fatigues of the march, others nimbling the few tufts of grass which the shortness of their tether enabled them to reach. That which gave me the strongest assurance of safety, however, as I glanced across the little stream and beheld the conical forms of the white lodges of the Indians, was a silent picture of the sentry as he paced his lonely post within a few feet of where I lay. And when my inquiry, in subdued tones, if all had been quiet during the night, came the prompt soldierly response, All quiet, sir. I felt renewed confidence, and again sought the solace of my equestrian pillow. Breakfasting before the stars bade us good night, or rather good morning, daylight found us ready for the duties of the day. As soon as the Indians were prepared for my visit, Yellow Bear came to inform me of the fact and to escort me to Little Raven's Lodge. Romeo and Neva accompanied me, the former as interpreter. I directed Captain Robbins, the officer next in rank, to cause all men to remain closely in camp during my absence, and to be careful not to permit more than the authorized number of Indians to enter, also to watch well the Indian village, not that I believe there would be an attempt at a stratagem, but deemed it well to be on guard. To convince the Indians of my own sincerity, I left my rifle and revolver with my men, a measure of not such great significance as it might at first seem, as a question of arms or no arms would have exercised but little influence in determining my fate, had the Indians, as I never for a moment believed, intended treachery. Arrived at Little Raven's Lodge, I found him surrounded by all his principal chiefs, a place being reserved by his side for me. After the usual smoke and preliminary moments of silence, which strongly reminded me of the deep silence which is the prelude to religious services in some of our churches, Little Raven began a speech, which was mainly a review of what had been agreed upon the evening before, and closed with the statement that his people were highly pleased to see white men among them as friends, and that the idea of complying with my demand in regard to proceeding to our main camp had been discussed with great favor with all his people, who were delighted with this opportunity of terminating the war, all questions affecting the Arapahoes being satisfactorily disposed of. I now introduced the subject of the whereabouts of the Cheyenne village, stating that my purpose was to extend to them the same terms as had been accepted by the Arapahoes. To this I could obtain no decisive or satisfactory reply. The Cheyennes were represented to be moving constantly, hence the difficulty in informing me accurately as to their location, but all agreed that the Cheyennes were among a long distance west of where we were then. Finally, I obtained a promise from Little Raven that he would select two of his active young warriors who would accompany me in my search for the Cheyenne village, and whose knowledge of the country and acquaintances with the Cheyennes would be of incalculable service to me. As a limited amount of provisions on hand would not justify us in continuing our search for the Cheyennes, 
I decided to await the arrival of Colonel Cook, who, I felt confident, would reach us in a few days. In the meanwhile, the days fixed for the departure of the Arapahoes came, and the village was all commotion and activity, lodges being taken down and packed on ponies and mules, the activity I might mention being confined, however, to the squaws, the noble lords of the forest sitting unconcernedly by quietly smoking their long red clay pipes. I was sorry to lose the services of Yellow Bear, but it was necessary for him to accompany his people, particularly as he represented the peace element. I gave him a letter to General Sheridan in which I informed the latter of our meeting with the Arapahoes, the council, and the final agreement. In view of the further extension of our journey, I requested a second detachment to be sent on our trail with supplies to meet us on our return. Everything being in readiness, the chiefs, commencing with Little Raven, gathered around me and bade me good-bye, Yellow Bear being the last to take his leave. This being ended, the entire village was put in motion, and soon stretched itself into a long, irregular column. The chiefs formed the advance, next came the squaws and the children and the old men, followed by the pack animals bearing the lodges and household goods. After these came the herd, consisting of hundreds of loose ponies and mules driven by squaws, while on the outskirts of the entire cavalcade rode the young men and boys performing the part of assistance to the herders, but more important as flankers or vedettes in case of danger or attack. Nor must I admit another important element in estimating the population of an Indian village, the dogs. These were without number, and of all colors and sizes. It was difficult to determine which outnumbered the other, the dogs or their owners. Some of the former were mere puppies unable to travel. These were carefully stowed away in a comfortable sort of basket made of willows and securely attached to the back of one of the pack animals, the mother of the interesting family trotting along contently by the side of the latter. After the excitement attending to the departure of the Indians had passed, and the last glimpse of the departing village had been had, our little party seemed lonely enough as we stood huddled together on the bank of the Mulberry Creek. There was nothing to be done until the arrival of our expected supplies. Little Robe, impatient at the proposed delay, concluded to start at once in quest of his people, and, if possible, persuade them to meet us instead of awaiting our arrival. He evidently was anxious to have peace concluded with the Cheyennes, and thus enable his people to be placed on the same secure footing with the Arapahoes. Instead of opposing, I encouraged him in the execution of his plan, although loath to part with him. The two young Arapahoes were to remain with me, however, and by concert of plan between them and Little Robe, we would be able to follow the trail. It was agreed that if Little Robe should come up with his people and be able to induce them to return, he was to send up smoke signals each morning and evening in order that we might receive notice of their approach and be able to regulate our march accordingly. Giving him a sufficient supply of coffee, sugar, and hard bread, we saw Little Robe set out on his solitary journey in the character of a veritable peace commissioner. I might fill several pages in describing the various expedients to which our little party resorted in order to dispose of our time while waiting the arrival of our supplies. 
how Romeo, by the promise of a small reward in case he was successful, was induced to attempt to ride a beautiful Indian pony which he had caught on the plains and which was still as wild and unbroken as if he had never felt the hand of a man. The ground selected was a broad border of deep sand extended up and down the valley. Two long lariats were securely fastened to the halter. At the end of one was my brother. I officiated at the end of the other, with the pony standing midway between us some twenty feet from either, and up to his fetlock in sand, an anxious spectator of what was going on. Everything being in readiness, Romeo, with never a fear or doubt as to the result, stepped quietly up to the saddle of the pony, who turned his head somewhat inquiringly, uttered a few snorts, indicative of anything but gentleness. Romeo, who was as active as a cat, succeeded in placing his hands on the pony's back, and with an injunction to us to keep firm hold of the lariats, he sprang lightly on the back of the pony and seized the mane. I have seen trained mules and delight of boys who attend to the circus, and sometimes of persons of more advanced age, and have witnessed the laughable efforts of the youngsters who vainly endeavor to ride the contumacious quadrupled once around the ring, but I remembered nothing of this description to equal or resemble the frantic plunges of the Indian pony in his untrained efforts to free his back from its burden, nor the equally frantic and earnest efforts of the rider to maintain his position. Fortunately for the holders of the lariats, they exceeded the length of the pony's legs or his heels, which were being elevated in all directions, and almost at the same time would have compelled us to relinquish our hold and leave Romeo to his fate, as both pony and rider seemed to redouble their efforts for the mastery of the scene became more ludicrous, while the hefty and prolonged shouts of laughter from the bystanders on all sides seemed only to add intensity to the contest. This may strike the reader as a not very dignified proceeding, particularly upon the part of one of the lariat holders. But we were not studying how to appear dignified, but how to amuse ourselves. So exhausted did I become with unrestrained laughter as I beheld Romeo in his lofty gyrations about a center which belonged to the movable order, that a much further prolongation of the sport would have forced me to relinquish my hold on the lariat. But I was spared this result. The pony, as if studying the problem, had indulged in almost every conceivable form of leaping, and now, rising almost perpendicular on his hind legs, stood erect, pawing the air with his forelegs, and compelling Romeo in order to prevent himself from sliding off, to clasp him about the neck with both arms. The pony seemed almost as if waiting the situation, as with the utmost quickness, and before Romeo could resume his seat, he descended from his elevated attitude, and the next moment his head was almost touching the ground, and his heels occupied the space just vacated by his head in mid-air. This sudden change was too much for Romeo, and as if projected from an ancient catapult, he departed from his place on the back of the pony and landed on the deep, soft sand many feet in advance of his late opponent. Three times was this repeated with almost the same result until finally Romeo, 
as he brushed the sand from his matted locks, expressed it as his opinion that no one but an Indian could ride that pony. As Romeo himself was half Indian, the distinction seemed finely drawn. Innumerable were the tricks played on each other by one and all. Everything seemed legitimate sport which tended to kill time. Three days after the departure of the Rapaho village, the lookout reported that parties were in sight some three or four miles in the direction taken by the village. This created no little excitement in camp. Field glasses were brought into immediate requisition, and after a careful examination of the parties who could be plainly seen approaching us in the distance, we all came to the conclusion that what we saw must be the escort with our supplies. A few horses were soon saddled, and two of the officers, with some of the men, galloped out to meet the advancing party. It proved to be Colonel Cook with California Joe and a dozen men, bringing with them several pack animals loaded with fresh supplies. I need not say how we welcomed their arrival. It was too late in the day to make it desirable for us to set out on the trail a little robe, as it was necessary to unpack the issue rations and repack the remainder, so that it was concluded to remain until next morning, an additional reason in favor of this resolution being that the horses of Colonel Cook's party would have the benefit of rest. This account given by Colonel Cook and California Joe concerning their march was exceedingly interesting. It will be remembered that it was the expectation that we would find the Arapaho village nearer our main camp than we afterward did, and in my letter to General Sheridan I have intimated that Colonel Cook would probably overtake us at a point not far from the termination of the Wichita Mountains. Colonel Cook arrived at the designated point, but we, of course, had gone and not finding any letter or signal at our deserted camp, he became not unnaturally anxious as to where we had gone. This will not be wondered at when it is remembered that we had but thirteen men with him, and was then in hostile country and far from all support. However, he had nothing to do but to continue on our trail. That night will no doubt long live in the memory of Colonel Cook. After reaching camp with his little party and a small piece of timber, he, as he afterward related to me, began taking a mental survey of his situation. For fear of misleading the reader, I will here remark, as I have indicated in previous chapters, that fear or lack of the highest order of personal courage was not numbering among the traits and character possessed by this officer. After seeing that the animals were properly secured for the night and his men made comfortable, he sat down by the campfire awaiting the preparation of his evening meal. In the meantime, California Joe found him and entered into a discussion as to the probabilities of overtaking us soon, and in a kind of Jack Bunsby style suggested, if not, why not? The more Colonel Cook looked at the matter, the more trying seemed his position. Had he known as we then knew that the Arapahoes had been found and a peaceful agreement entered into, it would have solved all his difficulty. Of this he, of course, was ignorant, and thoughts ran through his mind that perhaps my little party had been led on only to be massacred, and his would follow blindly to the same fate. 
This recalled all former Indian atrocities with which he was familiar, while prominent above them all rose before him the fate of young Kidder and party, whose fate is recorded in a former chapter. In thinking of this, Colonel Cook was struck by a coincidence. Kidder's party consisted of almost the identical number which composed his own. Kidder had a guide, and Cook had California Joe, all of which, without attaching any importance to his words, the latter took pains to remind Colonel Cook of. By the time supper was prepared, Colonel Cook felt the responsibilities of his position too strongly to have any appetite for food, so that when supper was commenced he simply declined it, and inviting California Joe to help himself, an invitation to the latter was not slow in accepting. Posting his guards for the night, Colonel Cook felt that to sleep was impossible. He took his seat by the campfire, and with his arms by his side, impatiently waited the coming of dawn. California Joe, who regarded the present as far more important than the future, and whose slumber would have been little disturbed even if he had known that hostile Indians were soon to be encountered, disposed of Colonel Cook's supper, and then, wrapping himself up in his blanket, stretched himself under a tree near the fire, and was soon sleeping soundly. His brief account of the enjoyment he derived from Colonel Cook's supper was characteristic. I sort and sort of eaten of them young men's vittles, while he in his cavalry boots with his pistols in his belt stood a-looking into the fire. Early next morning, as soon as the light was sufficient to enable them to follow our trail, Colonel Cook and his party were on their way. About noon, as they were passing over a low ridge yet sufficiently high to enable them to see for miles beyond, the eyes of one of the party caught a view of a long line of dark-looking objects miles in the advance, yet directly in their path. Each moment the objects became more distinct, until finally Colonel Cook, who was studying them intently through his glass, pronounced the simple word, Indians. End of chapter 20, part 1